Ephesians 2, everybody there? Great. 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you, Brittany. You're welcome. Amen, right? Let's talk. All right, if I start sweating a lot, it's just the fire. Don't worry. I'm fine. Um, what has come up a lot in our identity series is this idea of resurrection, right? It seems to be pretty prevalent. And now let's ask this question. What really is the essence of resurrection? Meaning, what is resurrection in its most simple, basic form? What are you going from and what are you going to when you are resurrected? Exactly, death to life. You're going from death to life. And... I want to say resurrection is the transition or process that, or the transitionary process of going from death to life. Cool? Now, this is really prevalent in this section of scripture. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is what will be our focus tonight. Now, Ephesians as a whole, and it's also true for this section, but Ephesians is just really thick. There's just so much information packed into each word. It's like each word itself is like a knockout punch from a heavyweight, you know, in the world championship fight. It's that intense. And if we take time to look at the depth that is there in it, we will allow it to penetrate us. We'll allow it to become a part of us. And we will allow it to inform our story and our identity. So now, as we're looking at resurrection, as we're looking at identity, here's something that we have to address. It's a myth. There's a myth 
that most of us believe, and it is detrimental to our having a right understanding of our true identity. The myth is this. I am the protagonist of my own story. I am the protagonist in my life. I think it, I know that you guys think it, and we collectively as a church think it. It is prevalent in, whether it's in Christianity or outside of Christianity. Believers and unbelievers all tend to believe that they are the protagonists of their own story. Now, the reality is, according to the biblical narrative, that's not true at all. In fact, we're the problem. And that's exactly what Paul is going to touch on right here in Ephesians 2. So let's look at, real quick, verses 1 through 3 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Before you were who you are, before you were founded in this new identity that Paul is <laughs> preaching to the Ephesian church, beforehand, you were dead. You were walking just as the rest of the world walked. You were walking in your sins and trespasses, both your intentional sins and your unintentional sins, the ones that you don't even know about. But the point is, you were walking and conducting your life in this manner, and you didn't know any different. You didn't know what was the way out. And here's the problem. You assumed that that myth was true when you were in that state. When you were walking in a state of death, when you were walking in your sinfulness, unredeemed, you believed, like the rest of the world, that you were the protagonist of your own story. And we can see this, this assumption, this myth, we can see it in the great civilizations throughout world history. We could see it in the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, which we'll talk about tonight. We can see it in the Greeks. We can see it in the Romans. We can even see it in America. Whoa. This idea that we are the solution or we hold within us the solution to the problems of this world. We, if we just try hard enough, think hard, hard enough, collaborate enough, put enough of the great minds together, read enough of the right books, listen to enough of the right voices, that we can be the solution to what is wrong in the world. And as Paul points out, what is wrong in the world is the prevalence and the reign 
of death. Now we see this when uh, governments get this idea, well, if we just promote social peace, and to promote social peace, all we need to do is establish systems of laws, we need to uh, raise some taxes so that we can have a police and an army, we can ensure domestic tranquility, well then those bad guys who threaten the peace on the streets, we need to build prisons for them. So we'll build prisons, and we'll hire guards, and we'll have these prisoners, we'll keep the unsafe people away from the people who just want to live in peace and don't want to be bothered. And then, well, those, those prisoners get rowdy, so we're going to have to train our prison guards. We're going to have to give them bullets and tasers and things that will ensure that they have the upper hand should things get out of control. We give these same tools to the policemen on the streets so that in case the violence is not contained in these nice little asylums, they can take care of it out on the streets and they're trained and they wear bulletproof vests and they train themselves and they go to classes to, and they learn martial arts and they learn gun safety and they learn all the tricks and they even carry handcuffs, right? So that if they catch the guy, they can detain him, right? So we do all of these things within society to ensure peace. And then uh, we have like global initiatives. What's wrong with the world right now? Well, the environment is out of control. Well, we just need to begin a global initiative that we will stop putting as much waste and toxic waste into the environment. We need to put regulations. So all we got to do is come up with uh, some new plans, some new stuff that these factories and uh, industries have to follow so that our environment doesn't collapse on itself and we can no longer use it as a resource. Well, this is the case, and, it, and we can go on and on about these ways in which we systematically come up with our own solutions to what is wrong in the world. But here's the problem. If the... If what is wrong with the world is death. And we are a people walking in death. How can dead people fix death? How can we be the solution to the problem? When we assume we're the protagonist, we think that it's just outside of our reach and if we just think a little more and we just plan a little more and we just put our minds together a little more, we can come up with it. But dead people cannot fix something that is dead. Now, here's what happens. We have laid the scene. This is what's going on in our current society and world. And this is the state that we find ourselves in. Verse 4 begins with, but God. But God. And now I don't want to say that God has a big butt. But that's a pretty big butt. <laughs> Death prevailing in the world. Us knowingly and unknowingly walking in it, trying to fix ourselves and be our own protagonists. Now here's 
what the text has to say about God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And now we've got to, so that these aren't just words, we have to bring about the significance and the relevance to us, and we have to really get at the meaning. And so let's take a little bit of a detour, all right? Um, let's talk about Moses for a second. Moses played the role of a priest, right? Meaning he represented God to the people and he represented the people to God. He was the go-between. He was the mediator by which interaction could happen between God and people. And uh, we're actually going to look at Exodus 19. So if you'd like, you can just flip right over there. We're going to look at Exodus 9, verse 3 through 6. 19. Exodus 19, verse 3 through 6. All right, starting in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among people, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, let's understand where this is. These words we just read, where they are, where their situatedness in the book of Exodus. It is four chapters, five chapters after uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. And it is a chapter before the Lord gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on tablets of stone. So God calls his people to himself at Mount Sinai. He gathers them and he calls them to a particular calling. And now out of those people, a priest, that would be Moses, goes up the mountain communicates with God, just the two of them, and he tells them what Moses needs to go communicate to the the rest of the Hebrew nation. So upon this interaction, he says, I'm calling you to myself. Tell everybody, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is your commission. So... Moses' job is then to go tell the Israelites, this is the interaction I had with the Lord God. This is what he told me. And how did they get there? How did they get to this place at the foot of Sinai, awaiting news from 
Moses on what the Lord God would have to say to them. And they are just on the heels of having crossed through the Red Sea. Now, what did the Red Sea represent? A transition from death to life. They found themselves on the beginning of the Red Sea with nothing but sea in front of them. And nothing but Pharaoh and his armies hot on their heels with no other thought than to kill them. So, <laughs> what, do, what do you think Israel was thinking as they're faced with this death before them, death behind them? They're like, can't go over it, can't go under it. got to go through it and if they thought they had to go through it how would they have presumed that they were to get through the red sea which seemed like the only feasible option not that they could have like swam across or anything but it would have been to do it in their own strength in their own might and swim basically as far as they could now here's an example of where the but god comes in when they were in a place where there was nothing but death, God intervened. As we know, he parts the Red Seas with a great wind. And as Exodus 19 tells us, the Israelites were taken across the Red Sea, not because they figured out a great solution, not because they worked out a great plan, but they were carried on eagle's wings from death with no way out into life, where death was then swallowed up. So, bearing this in mind and bearing the understanding that Paul, as a Jew, has these Jewish stories written into his identity. They form him. They form his community. They form his understanding of the world. So with stories like this in mind, Paul is writing to a church of some Jews, also some Gentiles who have been brought in who are not versed in this story. So... Let's keep reading, and we're going to pick up again in verse 5. Back in Ephesians 2 now. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, uh, God made us alive together with Christ. Even while we were on the other side of the Red Sea, He carried us on eagles' wings through it. Now it is by grace you have been saved and raised uh, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through, through, <laughs> not through face. <laughs> grace and face. That's what tonight is about. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. All right. And this not of your own doing. You didn't figure it out on your own. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this end little section here uses the word or a form of the word work three times. It says, number one, you're not saved by works. Second, two, second two, two, you are God's workmanship, meaning he created you. You are his little piece of work, right? His artwork. And three, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that we should walk in good works. So recap: we're not saved by our works; we are His work, and we are created to walk in good works that He prepared beforehand. Now we could get confused in this passage. It seems to say almost two different things, but let's clarify a bit. It seems to be saying works are bad, yet at the same time, works are good, right? And you're like, what the heck? But I know that we are his workmanship, meaning he did work to create us, right? We remember back to... um, Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. We remember when God created us in his image and he breathed the spirit of life into us and he stepped back and he goes, it is good. Right? We are his workmanship. And now here's the thing where we get confused about works. There's two kind of works that are identified here. If we believe the myth that we are the protagonist of our story as opposed to God. If we believe that we are the protagonist, the work that we will try to do is a work that saves us. That make sense? We will try to achieve something out of our own might. That will get us across the Red Sea. Now this is not the biblical message. This is not the same as being carried on eagle's wings across the Red Sea. This is not the same as getting across the Red Sea on the basis of grace. So if we believe we're the protagonists. We will do works in our life. To try to earn life. To try to earn heaven. To try to earn 
access to God, to try to earn our way across the Red Sea. That is something we are incapable of doing. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace. You are saved by God's love and his mercy and the intervention of eagle's wings. You are saved by the power that brought the only man who's been resurrected so far from death to life. The power of the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying that same spirit which raised Christ from the dead is now in you. What are the implications of that? Well, this. We are to do a kind of work in our life, but it is not a saving work. Because if we spend our lives trying to do a saving work in our own lives, trying to be our own protagonist, if that's how we spend our life in our works, we are sticking it in God's face. We are saying, "Uh uh-uh, no thank you. I don't need your eagle's wings. I don't need your grace. I can part the Red Sea by myself. Right? So what kind of works then are we to do? If they're not saving works, what kind of works are they? Well, they are good works that God prepared for us beforehand that are a part of our new identity in Christ. For he raised us from being dead in our trespasses. Remember the big but, but God. And he intervened while we were dead in our trespasses. He did the saving work. He worked too. He did the saving work. And now we are raised to be alive. Death to life. Resurrection. We are raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus to walk in good works. Now your identity is what we're looking at through this whole series. And the resurrection is so central to your identity. Because resurrection life is real life. Thinking you're the protagonist of your your of your own story, that is not real life. That's not. It's a lie. And we, if we should base our identities and our lives and our works on this lie, the only works we will do will be an attempt of saving works in our own lives. Yet if we accept that we did not produce eagle's wings, that we did not carry ourselves from death to life through the Red Sea where death was all around us and now death is covered up. If we accept that identity, the resurrection identity that only, only, only happens in Jesus Christ, 
the one man to be resurrected and the one man through whom the rest of us can be resurrected. With that identity, we can do good works. We can allow that identity to make our works no longer about us in saving me, but our good works to actually be about telling people who the king is. You see, when God told Israel that he was going to make them into a kingdom of priests, a kingdom has a king, right? And priests are representatives. Now, this kingdom of priests were to represent the king to the rest of the world who did not know. They were to live in such a way and conduct themselves in such a manner that the rest of the world knows that he is king and not Pharaoh and not Caesar and not any other king or not any other diplomat or president or whatever the case may be. That Jesus Christ is king. And this nation or this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, this set apart nation to walk out good works, not earning something for themselves, but informing the rest of the world who the real king is. So as you can see, our works are not our grace. Our works are not our salvation. Our works in the Christ resurrection identity, our works are a way of life. It is the way in which we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In the same way that God beckoned Israel to himself at Sinai and he called them there to make them a kingdom of priests. He still has a call to himself. Yet it now applies not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. So as we find ourselves in this community called the church, he is calling us to himself as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. And as we move towards him, not in our own power, but with the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That as we walk towards him and his manner of life, and the Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to the full stature of Christ, to make us just like Jesus, to be conformed to his image, it is a testimony to the rest of the world that Jesus is the one and only and true king. So as we consider this for our lives and the implications and what it means for identity and what it means when we walk out of the doors, consider this. The way we conduct ourselves, say who we think the king is. If we still believe that we're the protagonist, our works, no matter how good they are, will only be 
in a vain effort to save ourselves or to attempt to save ourselves as if we could. And when we walk out the doors and people see our conduct and they see the call that we're walking according to, they will say, that guy right there, he's the king. Why would we want to do that? When we got as lavished his love and grace and mercy on us and resurrected us to newness of life. Yet if, when we walk out of here, we walk in such a way that we are not the protagonist, we are okay with not being on the top spot or on the throne ourselves, but if we walk in such a way that we say, Jesus Christ is the King, and there's nothing I could have done to save myself or to bring myself from death to life, I could not have resurrected myself, then our good works will not be self-centered, but God-centered. They will say to people, the message that our good works will send is that Jesus Christ is the King, the one and only King. Let's choose those kind of works, right? Now let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we are no longer dead in our trespasses, that you intervened. God, that you lifted us up on eagles' wings, did what we could not do, and carried us from death to life. God, there's really no words that we can muster up to say how much that means. But as an act of gratitude and as an act of praise to you, we can walk in good works. We can walk in such a way that says that you are the king. We can walk resurrected and tell others that the resurrection is available in you. In Jesus' name, amen.